For the disciples, the resurrection was a surprising and a happy ending to what could have been a sad, sad story. But it was more. It launched them on a new adventure. It fostered assurance and it sparked new vision. And it emanated for them fresh calling. And it prompted in them courage and action. You see, the resurrection was the beginning of faith, not its end. After the resurrection, the disciples would need more faith, not less. Jesus was alive. And the disciples would need more faith to follow him. In the 1977 television miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth, the political Jew who conspired with Judas, he enters the empty tomb and he discovers that the man that he's helped crucify has risen from the dead. In the scene, he gazes off into the distance and then he whispers to himself, Now it begins. Now it all begins. And how appropriate. It did begin. It began with his resurrection and it continues today. This Jesus movement. Jesus spreading his light and love throughout the world. Tonight we study the end of a gospel, but the start of the gospel. Now remember John chapter 19 recorded the bloody ordeal. It began with Jesus' scourging. It ended with his burial. And in between there was abuse and nails and searing pain and humiliation and unimaginable pain and a broken heart. Jesus gives it all on the cross. His back to the executioners, his garment to the soldiers, his mother to John, his spirit to the Father, his life to you. Pilate then gives the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea. Sadly, they were in a rush. Joseph and Nicodemus and the women. At this point, the rituals of their Passover Seder were more important to them than providing Jesus, their Passover Savior, a decent burial. Considering their time constraints, they did the best they could, and they rolled the stone over the mouth of the tomb. They decided to return on Sunday morning and finish the job And that's where we are now. It's the first day of the week. John chapter 20 verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now the Greek word translated early is really a technical term. It was the fourth and last watch of the night It was between 3 and 6 o'clock a.m. It's interesting, Mark 16 verse 2 says that the women came to the tomb, and I quote, when the sun had risen. John says they came while it was still dark. Perhaps they left in the dark, but they arrived after sunup. Matthew says that the women came as the day began to break. Then she, Mary Magdalene, ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And of course, this was the special title by which John, the Apostle John, referred to himself. And she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. At this point, Mary doesn't realize that Jesus is risen. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Well, John was a little younger than Peter, probably in better shape. Peter took off running, but petered out, you could say. You know, hey, give him a break. He'd been eating a lot of crow, or or maybe rooster, over the previous few days. It had gotten a little heavy. He, he was slowed down a bit. Verse 5, And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. 
And here is every mother's favorite part of the Easter story. She always points this out to her kids. Look, buddy, even after his resurrection, Jesus folded his clothes. (laughs) Verse 8, Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, John, went in also. John had won the race, and, and he looked into the tomb, but he waited on Peter to catch up and enter first. Now John follows Peter into the tomb. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. The Greek term translated saw, it means to see with comprehension and understanding. Something caught John's attention and sparked his faith. He's risen. Hey, maybe it was the folded clothes. Maybe it was. You know, John might have figured if the body had been moved, the grave clothes would have gone with the corpse. If robbers had tampered with the body, they wouldn't have taken time to fold the cloth. Maybe the folded clothes did mean that Jesus had risen. John had spent a lot of time with Jesus. He knew Jesus. Apparently, we should add neatness To the virtues of the Savior. That John saw the folded clothes. Or or perhaps the way they had been folded. He knew the tidying up had been done by Jesus. And by the way. I hope you know what Jesus is doing today. He's spending a lot of time tidying up our lives. Well then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Mary had now returned for a second inspection. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And this is where Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe makes a very interesting observation. He says that this scene resembled the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. You remember between God's law inside the ark and God's love above the ark set a solid gold slab, the mercy seat. The mercy seat. This was where the blood was applied. This is where the demands of the law and the love of God were reconciled through the blood. And at either end of the mercy seat, there on the ark were what? Two angels, two cherubim. The angels here are a reminder that Jesus is our mercy seat. That's what John would later write in 1 John and call him our propitiation, or literally, our mercy seat. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? The term means literally wailing, crying loudly. She wasn't just whimpering here, she was truly weeping. She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now in this commentary on John, my my good friend Wayne Taylor, he comments on this verse, and I want to read you this quote. He says, Mary beholds two angels in white, but she's so caught up worrying about her Lord, she hardly notices them. The normal response in Scripture when a person sees an angel is to fall down and be afraid. But Mary is so taken with her feelings for Jesus Christ that not even seeing angels could distract her from wanting Him. If you really want Jesus, no substitute will do, not even angels. You know, ever so often, the church gets preoccupied with angels. We go through this angels craze. You know, a fascination arises, a bunch of books get written. You know, a few years ago, Touched by an Angel was the popular television program. You remember that? Well, here Mary sees and she speaks to two angels. But her heart and mind are preoccupied with Jesus. I hope you know that spiritual phenomena and supernatural manifestations, even angelic visitations, are no substitute for Jesus. In fact, you can mistakenly allow the things of God to distract you from God Himself. 
Angels testify of Jesus, but they never try to take his place. Verse 14 tells us, now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Now why didn't she know? We're not given that answer. It could be that Mary had sort of a spiritual block. You ever had a mental block? Ever had that? Where you just knew the person's name, but you just couldn't, couldn't get it there? Or you knew what word to say, but you just it wouldn't come to, right on the tip of my tongue. You know, you, you have the mental block, you have the verbal block. Well, there, maybe Mary had a spiritual block. You know, when the risen Lord joined the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, you remember Luke says, their eyes were restrained. They did have a spiritual block that it prohibited them from recognizing Jesus. It could be that since she'd concluded that Jesus was dead, she just didn't expect him to see him alive and, and therefore failed to recognize him. But there is a third possibility An explanation that, in fact, I tend to favor. Isaiah 53, verse 14, predicts that Jesus' visage, Messiah's visage, would be so marred and so disfigured after the crucifixion that he would no longer even look like a man. The cruelty and the brutality of the Romans ensured the fulfillment of this prophecy. His face had been beaten. His brow had been punctured with thorns. His beard had been pulled out by the root. If Jesus had been given a funeral, trust me, it would have been closed casket. Jesus could have passed for a boxer who'd been 15 rounds. He looked like he'd been in an airplane crash or a car crash and gone through the windshield head first. You know, later in John chapter 20, we see scars from the cross in Jesus' hands and in his side. If those scars were present in the, body of, in the resurrected body of Jesus, why then wouldn't there also be scars on his back and on his brow and on his face? You see, I believe that Mary failed to recognize Jesus because his face was so scarred and so disfigured. His appearance was unlike any man she'd ever seen before. You know, in Revelation chapter 5 verse 6, the same John is in heaven. And there he sees Jesus. And he writes this, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been slain. When we get to heaven, I believe we're going to be in for shock. Apparently, Jesus still bears the scars of his crucifixion. I think when we get to heaven and we see Jesus, I think at first we're going to weep. I think we're going to see those scars and I think we're going to weep. Because suddenly we're going to realize what it cost Jesus to be our Savior. You know, it's been said, the only thing in heaven that's man-made are Jesus' scars. And yet, those same scars will bring joy. Because they'll remove any doubt you have that He really loves you. And I think as the years go on and as the millenniums go on, we all will grow to love those scars. Usually pockmarks and scars are ugly and repulsive on earth. But in heaven, I think we will admire the scars of Jesus for all eternity. For the moment, his scars are blinding Mary now from identifying her Lord. Well, verse 15 tells us, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, And notice, for a gardener to be there, it must have been a garden tomb. If you've ever been there with me, they make a big point of that. 
You know, that's why we think that the Gordon's Calvary is the place that Jesus was crucified because there's a garden tomb right next to it. Uh, She thought he was the gardener. And she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. (laughs) And she turned and she said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. He speaks her name and it opens her eyes. And I am sure it was the way he spoke her name. When Mary's mom called her name, it was to scold. When the men in her life spoke her name, they were trying to manipulate her for their own selfish gain. When her neighbors said, Mary... They were out to bring judgment. But when Jesus spoke Mary's name, it communicated peace and acceptance and love. When Jesus said Mary, he said it in a way that she knew she was loved. And so, listen. For Jesus may be speaking your name right now, tonight. Now notice too how Mary refers to Jesus. There were varying degrees of respect that you could show your teacher. At the lowest level, you would call him Rob. To add respect, you would use the term Rabbi. The highest honor you could give him was to call him Rabboni. And that's what Mary here calls Jesus. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Now we're not given this detail, but we assume that Mary fell down on her face and somehow grabbed and latched on to the Master's feet. She sort of locked on to Jesus. Now to understand what she was doing here, think of all that Jesus had meant to Mary. Earlier in her life, she'd played the prostitute. She'd been a sleepover for demons. When she met Jesus, he had turned her whole life right side up. She was now free. She was forgiven. The carpenter of Nazareth had been busy building for her a new life. And thus, when Mary lost Jesus, she lost everything. Unlike the other disciples, she had no family or or friends or business to return to. Mary was truly homeless. And this is why Mary clung to Jesus with all her might. She had seen him crucified. Now she'll never let him go. She now wants him to stay with her forever. She's lost him once, never again. I'm going to hold on to him right here. But Jesus redirects her affections But what seems like these cryptic words, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. You see, Jesus is setting Mary at ease. Mary, you have nothing to fear. Your relationship with me will not end. It will just change. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm only here a short time, Mary. Don't get attached to me in my present physical form. I'm going to ascend to the Father. But we'll still relate, Mary. We'll still have this relationship, but in a new way. Spiritually now, not tangibly. Mary, like you and me, has to learn to relate to Jesus now through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will now come to dwell where the demons had lived, inside of Mary. And through the Holy Spirit, she will continue to walk in the mercy she'd received from Jesus. Thus, rather than tighten her grip, she needs to strengthen her faith. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, and notice this, the doors, they're hiding out. They're afraid. The Greek word here is very forceful. It means locked and bolted. The frightened disciples had barricaded themselves in. 
You know, this makes the suggestion that, that the skeptics will often bring up, that the disciples beat up the Roman guards and then stole the body of Jesus to foster a hoax, makes it pretty preposterous, doesn't it? Pretty outrageous. What do you mean? These guys are scared to death. They've locked and bolted the door. They're hiding out. These aren't the kind of men brave enough to venture and try to steal the body and foster some kind of hoax. These guys won't even go out in their front yard. John writes, Where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now this is the first time the risen Lord appears to his disciples since they forsook him and denied him. And I'm sure they were pretty uncomfortable with this encounter. They had not been looking forward to this encounter. I mean, they deserved his wrath and his condemnation. What is he going to say to them once he sees them again? I'm sure they were, they were a little uneasy about this. It's exciting to me, though, that his first words exude forgiveness. He looks at them and says, Peace be with you. Now when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They knew he had risen. Now now understand, Jesus' resurrected body was not a different body. It was the body born to Mary. It was the body that walked on water. It was the body that was nailed to the cross. You could see the scars still in this body. It was the same body. The same chemicals and organs that died and began the deterioration process were halted by God and reversed through resurrection. And yet when God did revive the body, He reassembled the molecules in order to provide new features. All of a sudden now, the resurrected body of Jesus can pass through walls. He just instantly appears there. They've locked the door. They've bolted the door. But suddenly Jesus appears in their midst. How did he get there? Well, he walked through the wall. The resurrected body can pass through walls. It can travel distances instantly. And yet it was still tangible and touchable. In fact, so much so it could handle a plate of the fish fry. You remember on the beach? He ate a plate of fish. This was really Jesus. Ghosts don't eat fish. But it was a new body. It was a, his same body, but it had new features. It was a new and improved version. Jesus was no longer flesh and blood. Why? Because he had spilt his blood. But he was still flesh and bone. Still human. Jesus' glorified body was the same body Mary laid in the manger. And yet soon it will ascend into the clouds. Though the process of resurrection, this body emerged no longer bound by the limits of time and space. Resurrection is really a cool process. Think of a historic building damaged by fire. Renovations occur. But with the rebuilding, the older structure gets sort of a much-needed facelift. Gets some upgrades. It gets modified. It's the same building, but it's new and improved. This is what we can look forward to when Jesus raptures the church. Because Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus was the prototype But we who follow Jesus will experience the same resurrection. We'll receive resurrected bodies just like Jesus with Christ-like properties. No more will I have to worry about locking my keys in the car. I mean, rather than pick the lock, I'll just kind of slip my atoms right through the door panel. I'll be right there in the car. If I needed a car, I wouldn't even need a car. Or a plane. Want to go to Honolulu? I'm just going to blink my eyes. I'm going to be there. In fact, Jesus' ascension proved that not even earth's gravitational pull was a concern of his. 
nor will it be a concern of yours or mine. During the millennial age, we want to go to heaven, we'll go to heaven. We want to come back to earth, we'll come back to earth. Resurrection is a cool process. I can't wait to be resurrected. <laughs> resurrected is a whole lot better than what we got right now. Wow. As Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, One day, these mortal bodies, they're going to put on immortality. And these corruptible bodies, they're going to put on incorruptibility. Guys, these bodies aren't, these are earth suits. You know that. These were designed for earth. These bodies are no good in heaven. We're headed to heaven. That's why we're going to get a body designed for heaven. And these bodies are going to be transformed. They're going to be resurrected to, to become heavenly bodies. We're going to get one. Resurrection's cool. Hey, you want to be resurrected. You really do. Verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And this must have seemed like such a stretch. I mean, the disciples, they barricaded themselves behind walls. Walls of fear. Walls of worry. And yet Jesus is ready to send them out. They're going to need some help. (laughs) And here it comes. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now it's time for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Because you remember the prerequisite for salvation is to believe in the resurrection. Romans 10 verse 9 makes this very clear. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and what? And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, now the disciples have believed in the resurrection. Thus, they receive the Holy Spirit and they are here born again. The Spirit of God enters their dead spirit and creates a new spark, a new birth, as Jesus called it. In John 14, verse 17, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, He dwells with you and will be in you. And here He makes good on that promise. He breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in them. You remember in the Garden of Eden, God breathed into the nostrils of the first man, Adam. And he became a living soul. Now here, Jesus breathes on the twelve disciples. And they become alive spiritually through the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 23. And if you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What does that mean? Put on your thinking caps. Put on your thinking caps. Here we're going to go back to Matthew 18. There Jesus gave his 12 disciples a special authority. Do you remember what it was? To bind and to loose. That's a rabbinical way of saying... To prohibit and to permit. To bind someone is to prohibit an activity. To loose someone is to permit them to do it. This was a special authority given to the 12 disciples that allowed them to establish normative faith and practice for the early church. And this authority guided the church fathers in the canonization of the New Testament. Canonization, what does that mean? That means the assembling of what were the inspired books. You see, because Jesus limited this authority to bind and to loose to the twelve apostles or men speaking for them, the church was able to identify those inspired writings and place them together in a canon or in one volume. That's what we call the New Testament. This authority to bind and loose allowed Jesus and the disciples to lay the foundation for orthodox Christianity. And here Jesus extends that authority to repentance and forgiveness. I mean, how do you know you're forgiven? Try to think back to the, to the very first Christians. They're at the resurrection of Jesus. How did they know they were forgiven? How do you know you're forgiven? 
Does God tear up the ticket? No. Does he issue a certificate of pardon? Hadn't gotten mine. No, we gain assurance of our salvation when we meet the conditions that are set up by the 12 disciples who followed Jesus and they're recorded for us where? In the New Testament. And it all goes back to this authority to bind and loose and then the extension of that authority that we find here If you forgive the sins of any, they will be forgiven. If you retain the sins, they will be retained. The twelve disciples were the ones who established what constituted true repentance and therefore forgiveness. You understanding that? Little nod? Good. Binding and loosing, by the way, is what happened in Acts chapter 15. When the church met there in Jerusalem to decide if the Gentile believers needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Of course, the verdict was no. Salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the same applies to us today. In fact, it will never change. Why? Because the men who are in charge of determining that doctrine are now all dead. This was a special authority Jesus gave to the twelve and it ended with them. And so here he tells them, people will know that they're forgiven. They'll know that they're not forgiven. Because you will establish the terms of forgiveness through the New Testament. Understand that? Good. Now Thomas, good old Thomas, called the twin. wonder why he was called a twin. Probably because he had a twin. Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. You see, the first twelve disciples, they were granted this special authority. But don't think that faith came easy for them. It didn't. Case in point, Thomas. He wasn't around when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. Which, by the way, means that he learned the hard way the truth of Hebrews 10 verse 25 Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. (laughs) And here's why you better not miss church. When believers gather together, Jesus shows up. And so by missing a meeting of Christians, you might just miss meeting the risen Lord. Ask Thomas. Believe me, he was never remiss again. Well, the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. Boy, Thomas was a pretty hardcore skeptic. He wanted some tangible proof. Called Thomas the show me disciple. He's probably from Missouri. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas with them. And Jesus came. Again, the doors being shut. He just slipped through the side of the wall. And he stood in their midst and he said, Peace to you. Again, Jesus approaches them with the intention of peace. But then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand there and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, Thomas, but believing. And we're not told how Thomas reacted. Did he do it? Did he come and slip his finger in Jesus' side? Did he actually grab Jesus' hands to examine the nail prints? We're not told. But I'm sure the offer itself melted his unbelief and his stubbornness and his doubt. In the stunning presence of the risen Lord, he dropped to his knees. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And you got to notice here, Thomas calls Jesus God. And notice, Jesus says nothing to rebuke him or correct him. Why? 
Because Jesus was God. It was blasphemy for a mere man to receive worship, but Jesus was no mere man. As Thomas put it, he is Lord and God. This is one of the strongest affirmations of the deity of Jesus in the Bible. And how ironic. It comes from the lips of one of the most notorious doubters. Blaise Pascal once said, Only he who doubts can truly believe. There's truth there. Working through honest doubt is what makes a faith stronger and stronger. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed or happier are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, today's world is dominated by a Thomas mentality. Seeing is believing is the creed. But Jesus teaches us the opposite. He says believing is seeing. Hey, you wait to see and you'll wait too late. The next time the risen Christ appears on this earth will be to bring judgment. Today we see him through spiritual eyes. You know, the resurrection appearances of Jesus lasted a mere seven weeks. When Jesus ascended into heaven, they stopped. Today you don't see Jesus until you believe. It's once you have faith in Christ, then he opens your eyes. And he helps you to sense his presence and feel his power and see his mercies. Verse 30 tells us, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. You could call this the most frustrating verse in the Bible. What were they? What were all those other miracles? We can only imagine at the wonders untold. He says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that believing, you may have life in his name. You know, we don't have all there is to know about Jesus, but we do have all we need to know. None of the Gospels were really intended as biographies on the life of Jesus. And this is why some typical biographical information gets left out. The Gospels were testimonies. Weren't not biographies, they were testimonies. They were sort of lengthy tracts. And the author's intention was clear. They were written to convince us that Jesus is God. And that by believing in Him, we can experience eternal life. This was their purpose. Chapter 21 begins, After these things, Jesus showed Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Another name for the Sea of Galilee. And in this way, He showed Himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin... Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee. You remember who they were? James and our author here, John. And then two others of his disciples, they were together. Seven of the twelve disciples had decided to go fishing. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we're going also. They went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Been there, done that. One commentary I read points out that Peter's words here in the Greek are in the present progressive tense, which means that they speak of continual activity. He's not just suggesting here a recreational fishing trip, he's going back to work. You remember, Peter was a fisherman by trade. He left his business to follow Jesus. The three and a half years on the road with Jesus had been thrilling days. But now it's time to get back to the real world. It's time to be responsible again, Peter says. Oh, the heady days of faith in God for his next meal or a place to sleep were over. It's time now to wet a few nets again. Boy, we need to start taking care of business. Let's just get back to work. I've been a crummy disciple. I'll be a better fisherman. Let's go back to work. I believe that Peter suffered from tremendous guilt and condemnation. He had to have had. Peter's failure was an 8.0 on the Richter scale of failure. I mean, his denial of Jesus was a big one. 
And I'm sure he thought, how could God ever use him again in any kind of official capacity? He just might as well go back to fishing. It was fun while it lasted. But Peter figured it could never be the same. He felt he was out of a job. It was time to look for some secular work. I know fishing. Let's go fishing. You know, when we fail in one area, it's common to bolster our sagging self-esteem by falling back on an old proficiency. Well, he couldn't make it his disciple, but he knew how to catch fish. And yet, notice the words. They caught nothing. Well, (laughs) and let me suggest this. If you've been called to serve the Lord... If you've been called to serve God in a certain capacity, understand, you'll never be happy or successful doing anything else. Once you've been called by God, you can't just go back to fishing. Paul wrote in Romans, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. It's interesting, God sees to it, the only fishing Peter will ever be good at is fishing for men. Verse 4, but when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. And yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? That's another way of saying, hey guys, caught anything? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And I love Warren Wiersbe's comment here. He, he writes, The distance between success and failure was the width of the ship. Notice they weren't off by much. Because as soon as they throw their nets on the other side, they got more fish than they can haul into the boat. Peter and his buddies, they were extremely discouraged. Now you can add fish into their list of failures. But they were closer to success Then they realized. You see, all they needed was a little fine-tuning, just a few words of direction from Jesus. You know, perhaps you've tackled a a project that's gotten the best of you. You think it's hopeless. You, You feel like you've got so far to go. But wait! You may be closer to success than you think. Perhaps just the width of a rowboat. You thought the task was a lost cause, but all you really lack is a little divine tuning. Fine-tuning. All you need to do is get on your knees and listen to Jesus again. You might not be far off at all. Just listen to what he tells you to do. How he sends you. How he directs you. And so they cast. And now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of the fish. And remember, this wasn't the first time that this had happened. You remember Luke chapter 5, back early in his ministry, a similar incident occurred in Peter and John's boat. Earlier, they cast nets at Jesus' command, and they caught a boatload of fish. It's interesting, the similarity of the miracles had to have caused some recognition in their minds. That's why the the, the next line, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. It's got to be. We've been here. We've done this. This is how Jesus works. It's the Lord. As soon as John saw those full nets, it clicked. His head spins in the direction of the man on shore, and he shouts out, Guys, it's the Lord. I can't tell you how many times in my life where Jesus has showed up. You You have those moments when all of a sudden something happens. You run into someone that you that you were intended to witness to. Or God does a miracle in your life. Or a provision shows up. Or you've been praying for some money and it shows up just in time to pay the rent. And, and you know what you say? It's the Lord. <laughs> just like Peter. What a great experience. I believe John included this story to teach us how to relate to the risen Christ. Because you never know when the risen Lord is going to show up. You understand this. Jesus is alive. And he's running loose out there. (laughs) He is. He's out there. 
And at times when you least expect it, when we're wrapped up in ordinary stuff, like fishing or like working or even like pastoring, suddenly Jesus shows up. He reveals himself out of the blue. And you realize it and it clicks. And you shout, it's the Lord. And it's also interesting that John, as he puts it, that disciple whom Jesus loved, he was the first one to recognize it. He was the first guy to shout, it's the Lord. You remember John sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He was the disciple who laid his head on Jesus' shoulder. And it's revealing that the disciple closest to Jesus' heart was first to recognize his presence. Which says to me, the more time we spend with Jesus, the more we pray and study his word, the quicker we are to hear his voice and to spot his movements. It was John who was first to identify Jesus. Now verse 7 tells us, Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea. And I've never been able to figure out why you put your coat on before you jump in the water. But this was just Peter. <laughs> you know, the outer garment was bulky and heavy, and Peter had taken it off to work the nets. But he puts on his down-lined parka to jump into the water. Okay, Peter. Peter's just being Peter. You know, he's reacting without thinking. Remember Peter's strategy was always ready, fire, aim. He was impulsive and he was foolish. But you got to give him credit. Because Peter was never short on passion and enthusiasm. Whenever he saw the Lord at work, he was always the very first to jump in. And in that sense, I want to be like Peter. Well, verse 8 tells us, But the other disciples, they came in the little boat. For they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, 300 feet or so. They came dragging the net with fish. And then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus already had the classroom set up. The props were already on display. The Lord had a lesson in mind. You remember where Peter denied the Lord? It, it, in the courtroom, but, but even more specifically, next to a fire of coals. That's right. Next to a fire of coals. Notice too, bread and fish are here. The elements Jesus used to feed the 5,000. And it was that miracle that led directly to Peter's stunning confession a few days later at Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think the catch, the campfire, the food were all props designed to get some points across to Peter. Verse 10. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. And I can't tell you how many volumes have been written with explanations on the symbolism of the number 153. I mean, you've got so many theories as to the symbolic meaning of that number. John counted up the fish and he, he wrote it down, 153. Why that number? Ooh, a hundred and fifty-three. Could it be? Could it be a hundred and fifty-three? Was because there were a hundred and fifty-three fish in the net? That's deep. That's pretty deep. Could it be? Sometimes we just need to keep it simple, okay? Jesus said to them, Hey, come and eat breakfast. And yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Notice Jesus doesn't invite them to lunch. Or to dinner. 
He invites them to breakfast. I, I think that's interesting. You eat breakfast when? Unless you're at the Waffle House. When do you eat breakfast? In the morning, right? At the outset of the day. Hey, this would be a new beginning for the disciples. Jesus is about to reinstate his disciples and reaffirm their calling to ministry. This is a new day in their lives. He invites them to breakfast. And notice the precedent here. Jesus is about to send the disciples to feed his sheep. But first he does what? He feeds them. And here is a foundational principle of the kingdom. Before you feed others, you first need to let Jesus feed you. Jesus then came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? There's the question, these what? You know, English teachers call this a dangling participle. Does it mean these men? Does it mean these fish? I mean, do you love me more than your former occupation? Jesus is asking Peter, is he willing to leave all a second time and come and follow him? I believe Jesus is reminding Peter of the boast that he made at supper. At breakfast, he reminds him of the boast he made at supper, the last supper. Remember Peter's arrogance in the upper room that night? In Matthew 26 verse 33, he elevated himself above all the other disciples. And he made that haughty statement. He said, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus is recalling the boast by essentially asking Peter, if you really love me, do you love me more than the other disciples? If you love me more than those other disciples, Peter, you won't deny me. Do you love me? More than these? Jesus continues, he said to them, said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. And when Jesus asks Peter, Do you love me? The Greek word that he uses for love is the word agape. You know, the Greek language had differing words for love. We just have one word I love my wife. I love ice cream. <laughs> you know. Well, I do love my wife a little bit more than I love ice cream. I really love Briar's ice cream, chocolate ice cream. But no, I, I love my wife more than I love Briar's chocolate ice cream. No doubt about it. So we have, uh, we have that one word. But in the, in the Greek, you have different words for love that, that are different degrees of love. Agape was the strongest kind of love. It spoke of God's love. A sacrificial, unselfish, unconditional, undying kind of love. This was the love that Peter had boasted that he had toward Jesus. And so Jesus asked him, do you agape me, Peter? But now when he responds, he says, yes, Lord, for you know that I love you. But Peter uses a different word now for love. He uses the word phileo or brotherly love. Philadelphia is the city of what? Brotherly love. Phileo, love was a notch below agape. Obviously, this time Peter is not so quick to boast. He now knows that the courage and the boldness and the bravery that he thought he had in him was missing come crunch time. Peter loved Jesus, certainly. But from here on out, he would never trust in his own strength to demonstrate that love. Verse 16, Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This time, Jesus alters his question and he gets down on Peter's level and he says to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? Do you really? You said you had twice. Do you phileo me? Jesus is saying, it's okay, Peter. Better to be honest, better to admit your weakness than to make prideful and rashful boasts. If phileo is all you got, 
then Peter, I'll take it. And I'll grow it. Jesus took Peter's phileo or brotherly love and he grew it into agape or sacrificial love. I don't know what kind of love for Jesus you have tonight, but give him what you've got. He'll take it. He'll grow it too. And any idea why Jesus repeats his question here three times? Well, Peter denied the Lord how many times? Three times. Jesus is reinstalling Peter to ministry. He's reversing his failure. He's giving Peter a brand new start. In repeating the calling three times, he's extending forgiveness to each of his three denials. What a comforting passage this is. As long as the mercy of Jesus is in play, the game is never over. There's always another chance for redemption. And notice what Peter is supposed to do if he loves Jesus. Notice this. He says, feed my sheep. The way you love Jesus is by loving his people. Say you love Jesus, but it rings hollow if you're not willing to feed his sheep. Feed someone's spiritual hunger. Lead a lost soul back to the fold. Then you are loving Jesus. And you are doing what he's called all of us to do. Verse 18. Most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus' words to Peter, you will stretch out your hand, speak of crucifixion. It was on July the 19th, 64 AD, that fire broke out in Rome. It burned for 10 days and it torched two-thirds of the downtown district. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. And rumors immediately circulated in Rome that the nutso Nero had set the blaze. Nero was a pyro. He countered those rumors by blaming the Christians for setting the fire. And Nero launched a massive roundup of Christian leaders. Both Peter and Paul were arrested and slaughtered. Paul was beheaded. But Peter was crucified and he was crucified upside down. Why? Because he said he was unworthy to be executed as his Lord. Here Jesus' prediction was ultimately fulfilled. When you get older, they will stretch out your hands. In John 13, verse 37, in the upper room, Peter had boasted, Lord, I will lay down my life for your sake. Peter failed that night, but he got another opportunity to prove his love for Jesus. And through the power of the Spirit, this time he succeeded. Verse 20, Then Peter, turning around, saw John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, following who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? I love Peter because he's just like me in a lot of ways. How often have I tried this same tactic? You know, the Lord is dealing heavily with me. But instead of taking it to heart... I try to shift the focus off myself to someone else. Lord, what about him? There were people this morning in the sanctuary. The whole time I was talking about trials and responding to trials correctly. You know what they were doing? They were thinking about all the people who needed to hear this sermon. Never once thinking that it might apply to them. I can always find someone worse off than me. And then I can point to them and I don't have to deal with my own problems. It's a lot more fun pointing out someone else's flaws than it is working on my own. Lord, what about her? Lord, how about him? This is what Peter's doing. And then Jesus said to Peter, If I will that you remain till I come, that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You know, one of the subtle traps in the Christian life is to compare my orders or my calling with someone else's orders or commission. 
The details of God's plan differ from believer to believer. What's deemed necessary for you is not always what God has planned for me, and vice versa. Keep your eyes on Jesus and your nose out of the other guy's business. If God wants you concerned for your brother, he'll lay it on your heart. Until he does, take the approach, what is that to you? You follow me. Well, then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. These rumors were swirling around John. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John is speaking here in the third person. John closes his gospel, verse 25. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Father, thank you for the wonderful gospel of John. 